0: We already know that most of the Republicans are in the tank for Donald Trump, not because they believe in him, but because they don't want to be Mike Prince. They don't want to be unable to go home when all this is said and done because these crazy people are trying to kill them, literally. Hi, I'm from the Griot. I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And today we have a special guest co-host. Hi, I'm Dr. Neombe Carter from Howard University. And you're listening to What's In It For Us. I'm so excited to have you here today, Dr. Carter. Okay, we have so much to discuss. First, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush from Missouri. Cory Bush has moved her office because Marjorie Taylor Greene is wild. Number two, vaccinations. It seems like the distribution is not the same across states and it's definitely not the same across races. And number three, this pending impeachment of your former president. What is his strategy and who has he chosen to be his lawyers? That's what we'll discuss. What do you think? Well, clearly we are in the upside down place. The whole world is gone crazy and everything that could go wrong right now is going wrong. So I think we're going to heck in a handbasket. But at the end of the day, all we really want to know is what's in it for us. Okay, so first things first, before we get started, I wanted to say happy Black History Month to one of my nearest and dearest friends. I do count you among the great women of Black history in my life, and I'm just so thankful that you're here to join me today. So as you know, Niabi, I'm writing this book on Barbara Jordan, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Stacey Abrams. And so as we think about sort of Black political first, I am in love with Barbara Jordan, and here's why. It feels like everyone's always talking about Shirley Chisholm, as they should. First Black woman ever elected to U.S. House of Representatives, from the great state of New York. Shout out to Brooklyn. But Barbara Jordan is often overlooked. She's the second Black woman ever elected to Congress. Shirley Chisholm was in 1968. Barbara Jordan's in 1972. But she's from the great state of Texas. She's the first Black woman from the South. She's also Black American. She's not Caribbean, which I do think that is a point that should be noted as we think about Black excellence and how this country deals with U.S. chattel slavery and the descendants thereof, as opposed to, say, Caribbeans and Africans. Obviously, I wrote a book called Black Ethnics, so I thought about it for a while. But I'm in love with Barbara Barbara Jordan and what she was able to do coming from the South. So are you thinking about Barbara Jordan this sort of Black History Month or who is tickling your fancy when it comes to Black political leaders that we should be thinking about and celebrating? I think Barbara Jordan is one of the titans of Black politics who really doesn't get enough credit. Think about how integral she was to the Nixon impeachment, that moving address she gave at the Democratic Convention in 76. Barbara Jordan, I think, was so robust as a political figure. But I think her untimely passing is really probably why we don't talk about her or more for a number of reasons. Howard, I'm thinking about Kamala Harris, because I do think that's an important first to note. Certainly, she will probably go down in history books, very recent ones. But I'm also thinking about a number of folks like Carol Moseley Braun made it possible for a Kamala Harris to exist in the Senate in a Barack Obama. And so for our listeners, Carol Moseley Braun is the first Black woman ever elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992 when it was year of the woman from the great state of Illinois. She's the first. Kamala Harris is the second yes. in the year 2016. We have never had a black female governor of a U.S. state. And we've only had two black female senators ever representing the United States, which is bananas. 20 some odd years apart, right? Yes. And from very different places. And I will say, Carol Mosey Braun doesn't just make it possible for other women. She makes it possible for those black men because Barack Obama gets it in Illinois on her heels. She's another one I'm thinking about. I'm also thinking about black mayors a lot. Mm, always. So I'm thinking about Carl Stokes and David Dinkins. And Marion and Barry. Don't forget Marion Barry from Washington. I was getting to Marion Barry because he's the DC's mayor for life, but the first elected Black mayor of this city. And I think the same about David Dinkins, the first and only Black mayor of your city of New York. I think it's awesome to see all of the gains that Black people made incrementally across time and space. Shirley Chisholm, rightfully so, takes up a lot of space because she's done so much on a national stage. But there are so many people in these smaller places that also we should think about. And I had to mention, David. David Dinkins because of his recent passing. Listen, I'm still torn up about David Dinkins' passing. Everyone was always like, oh, he's such a gentleman and so debonair, which he was, but his idea that he brought together literally one of the most diverse cities in our nation and led. And also, don't forget, he had racist Rudy Giuliani on his back the entire time. And so as he's trying to leave this city, he's constantly dealing with this white supremacist, who we then fast forward 30 years, people are like, oh my goodness, Rudy Giuliani's a mess. I'm like, he's always been a mess. Like, New Yorkers knew this. We've been but this is why when you brought up Marion Barry, I was going to bring him up too, because I think Marion Barry is often cast as for the crack episode that he is now infamous for. That the U.S. government spent $2 million to get that two-minute video, by the way. This was clearly a setup. This was not something that would have happened without their intervention. But people forget about the D.C. Works program, which put young people to work, young Black people to work in the city. When we know youth unemployment, Black youth unemployment is always an issue in American cities. He made D.C. a sanctuary sanctuary city in the 1980s. This is something, again, that's part of his political legacy that he gets no credit for, but this is something that everybody's talking about as this sanctuary city just popped out of the sky today. But people were doing this work a long time ago, and I think it's important that he was doing this work in a majority Black city in the 1980s amid one of the most depressed financial times of this city. Crime, drugs, everything was going wrong. And one of the most oppressive presidencies of the latter 20th century in the Reagan administration. The minute he comes into power, they were like, nope, let's take away all your right? They want to take all the power out of the mayor's office. And eventually, of course, that happens for a time. I think Black mayors don't get enough credit. I know that's something near and dear to your heart. And of course, Maynard Jackson. You can't forget about Maynard Jackson. I always told David Dinkins, I was like, you're my first and only mayor. And whenever I would bump into Mayor Nutter, who was a very good friend of Mayor and Dinkins, and they were at Columbia together, and I would always call him the secondary mayor. Because I spent a lot of time in Philly. I wasn't in Philly when he was the mayor. But I was like, oh, hi, you're my number two mayor. (laughs) He was like, you know what? If I'm standing next to David Dinkins, it's an honor and a privilege because everyone, knows what he did for New York City, because he was a national slash international figure. We've talked, obviously, a lot about the economic constraints that many Black mayors have to face when they come into power. It's often not just because of white flight, but because of Black flight. So they don't even have a tax base. But David Dinkins is the one who creates the U.S. Open in Queens. And of course, everyone's like, oh, he just likes tennis and it's just a vanity project. Do you realize that the U.S. Open in late August, early September brings in more money than every single sporting event in New York City combined? It is an international world event. It's basically having a mini Olympics every single year. But I think this is what happens when you are the Black mayor. You get credit for nothing. You can take all the slings and all the arrows, but you get none of the praise for the things you do do. And I think that happens all too frequently with Black mayors because there is a sort of begrudging acknowledgement that they exist. And I think in a city like New York, which prides itself on being this diverse, progressive place, the fact that you have had only one Black mayor. Only one non-white mayor, to be clear. Right. We've had 109 mayors, and we've only had one non-white mayor. In a city that's majority people of color. Exactly. And that tells you something about what he had to overcome to be in that position. And I think about that often. These local politics, especially in a city like New York, which has so many layers, that would actually mitigate against somebody like a Dinkins or even a Chisholm, winning local political office to ascend to these higher spaces. It's just amazing that anybody sticks with it, especially in a city like New York. Chicago, similar. It's still ways in which the cities frustrate Black political ascendants. And we know those sort of lower level positions are important to get into these higher echelon offices. For the pipeline. These jobs are basically audition. And when you're in a city like a Chicago or like a New York, where that is everything, then you know it's a huge deal. And in D.C., of course, when we're not a state, the mayor is as close as we're getting right now to being a governor, even though we don't have any of the protection. Well, you bring up a really important point about local politics as this audition, because we see Shirley Chisholm, Barbara Jordan, many women in Congress, many people in Congress started in their local state houses before they were able to make it to D.C. But think about someone who started in a local sphere. Stacey Abrams was the minority House leader in Georgia and then, as we know, ran for governor in 2018, and I will go to my grave saying that that election was stolen. Hopefully, it's looking like she's going to run again in 2022 and obviously, because of the infrastructure she's built, she's looking really great to be the first Black female elected governor in the history of our nation, but let's talk about Stacey Abrams getting the nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I just think we have recognized her work as Black academics who look at cities and leaders and parties and elections and the South. And you and I both work on immigration and what that means for changing structures of states, et cetera. But for her to get this international recognition, now I know a nomination isn't a win, but the fact that the world has seen what she was able to do, not just in Georgia, because keep in mind, Fair Fight was in 20 states. So as we celebrate Arizona and New Mexico and Michigan and Wisconsin, it is very clear that Stacey Abrams is the one that planted those seeds that we now see flourishing. She didn't pull a beto after she lost. It was like, oh, I'm going to on driving trip and like look at myself in the rearview mirror and like look <laughs> my wounds for two months and do what was me as these men do or like low-key Jamie Harrison you lose South Carolina you don't stay in South Carolina to build infrastructure you go on to the next job which is the DNC that's your right to do but it's so interesting to see how she was like oh okay so you steal it from me and I'm gonna sit here and do the work I'm actually gonna keep working to do the thing that we said we wanted to do which was to get a black woman into the governor's mansion as opposed to let me just go do some consulting or take another high-powered job. That's the great thing about Stacey Abrams. And I think that's why so many people respect her is that she had every incentive and every opportunity to stop doing the organizing work that she was doing in Georgia. And she said, no, I'm going to do this because I recognize what's possible. And you have to build these things over years. And I think to let that infrastructure collapse at that time, she was playing a long game while everybody else was playing a short game. She was thinking about what this is going to mean long-term. Now, will that mean something for her in the back end if she could be elected governor? Absolutely. But will the citizens of Georgia be better off because of it? Absolutely. And so I think Stacey Abrams having this acknowledgement, first of all, the haters are going to lose Ooh. it. They are already upset. They did the Stop Stacy Pack already. Dot org, honey. Dot org. They have a domain. They have bought the whole thing on GoDaddy. They are ready, okay? They are saying, we recognize this woman's power. You don't organize for people you don't think are strong. You ignore You don't them. organize against someone who you think is a loser. So they are already afraid because they know that she has power And this international recognition, I think just tells us more about where she's going to go. And this is one political figure that I cannot wait to see what her longer term career trajectory is because she will be a governor tomorrow, but who knows what else she will be. And I think she's a great ambassador of this country and really what the best of this country is about. Well, wasn't that what January 6th was all about? Absolutely. We have Stacey Abrams in the celebration of her delivering Georgia and having our first black and first Jewish senators coming from the state of Georgia. And then in the afternoon, we have an insurrection with white nationalists, with feces, these guns and... In- in a majority Black city. Let me just add that. This insurrection happened at the Capitol, but D.C. is still a majority Black city, and I think many people lost the fact that people like me who live in Black communities in this city were not allowed to even go to the drugstore past 6 p.m. because these yahoos down at the Capitol want to wreak havoc because a Black woman and Black people realize their political power in a state like Georgia. It was sour grapes, and I think they're going to be real salty when she runs for governor again in Georgia because I have no doubt that she will win. I think you nailed it on the head. She won the first time she ran. Right, so- They're going to be real salty when she wins again and then actually they can't steal it. So as always, we got to keep our eye on the prize because we know that there is so much that is in it for us. Okay, Niambi, it's time to talk about this woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So we know that she has had to remove several Facebook posts from the past few years. She has gotten elected on conspiracy theories. She's called for violence against her Democratic peers and colleagues. She has denigrated survivors of the Parkland shooting. She is supporting QAnon. She voted against President Joe Biden's Electoral College win, essentially furthering Donald Trump's conspiracy theory that the election was stolen from him, and we know six judges and court cases have said that that is absolutely not true. She's trolled Parkland shooting families and victims. And so they're calling for her removal. But we're still in this period where folks don't really know what to do with members of Congress like this because do you just kick them out full stop? How does one reprimand them? She's essentially trolling many of her colleagues. And Cori Bush, the recent congresswoman from Missouri, first black woman ever elected from the state of Missouri to Congress. So we're still on some firsts here. And she was like, you know what? I'm moving my office. This woman is a threat to me. She's a threat to my staff to say nothing of the fact that she doesn't even wear a mask. Well, listen, Corey Bush was exactly right in doing what she did because these people are dangerous and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's really just like a hate. She's just haunting every bit of this, but she is a creation of the GOP. They sold their souls to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene to win elections. And this is what they have brought. At this point, she is thumbing her nose at party leadership. She doesn't care about McCarthy. She doesn't care what McConnell says. The fact that Mitch McConnell, who I think it's very clear that care about anything other than his own power and stacking the courts. the fact that he said something about her, I think he likened her to a cancer on the party, tells you something about how dangerous this woman is. So Cori Bush is exactly right. A woman like Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't want to have to go through metal detectives in the house, who doesn't want to wear a mask, who doesn't want to do the minimum. The bare minimum, yeah. To be collegial and to be safe. For her co-workers, I wouldn't want to be near her office either. And she did what many women have done, white women have done, which is cry and suggest that Cori Bush was somehow being threatening to her by telling her to put on a mask, which is the rule. But again, because she's a white woman with a certain particular political persuasion, she's allowed to do whatever she wants. And everybody's sitting here like, we don't know what to do. Absolutely, you know what to do. Enforce the rules you have on the books. You could censure her, which means that you could just sit there, Speaker of the House Pelosi, and tell her everything that she has done wrong and all her offenses and make her listen. That's something they could do. They did it to Charlie Rangel. They could do that. They could vote to eject her. Her party's leadership, they could strip her of her committee assignments. They could do a number of things. The state party could put her out of the party and say, you can't run on our name anymore. There are a number of things they could do. They don't want to. So this whole, like, we don't know what we can do. Absolutely, you know what you can do. I think you brought up a few really important points that we need to tussle out. The first is this idea that a white woman can essentially give some crocodile tears, even though a black woman is feeling threatened. And we know there is nothing that we can do in this world that trumps white woman's tears. Or a white woman saying that we're threatening her. And we know that Cori Bush is not a size zero. She's not fair-skinned. There are all these other factors. She has natural hair. <laughs> She's from the state of Missouri. So it's considered like a Southern state. There are all these conversations that we're not having about who's the real threat and who isn't. Number two, as far as Mitch McConnell sort of reprimanding her and saying that, oh, we have these minor cancers in our party. You are more than happy to have these minor cancers. in your Absolutely. Party you're cultivating them. You are breeding them. You are feeding them. And the culmination was on January 6th. But you know what's going to happen again. January 6th was literally the beginning. But I think the piece that I really want you to dig into just a little bit more for our listeners is these state parties actually are with Representative Green. We've seen this in Arizona and New Mexico across the country now. They're actually censuring the quasi-decent Republicans who are saying like, uh, I think this might be a bridge too far if we're really thinking about the future of the party. (laughs) And it's the state parties that are like, no, I think that Jews have magical lasers and the children of George Soros. I think that black people are trying to kill us in our sleep and we have to arm ourselves to the teeth. We can't cannot work with Nancy Pelosi or any Democrats We will not wear masks. COVID is a figment of your imagination. And Joe Biden came and printed out ballots from his home printer with Barack Obama on November 2nd and flooded them in mailboxes across the country. This is literally, I'm not being hyperbolic. This is what these state parties are saying. So where does Congress go knowing that Representative Green is the one who's getting a lot of attention, but she ain't the only one. She's just the one out front. There's Josh Hawley, and we can't forget her Tea Party colleagues, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, who won in the 2010s with this idea that Congress was out of hand and we had to go in there and they sacrificed other Republicans. They sacrificed Eric Cantor, the Republican Virginia. <laughs> Listen, he woke up and was like, I don't have a job. He was <laughs> gone. He's been disappeared. Have you seen Eric Cantor? Do we know that he's safe? Listen, we have a better chance of seeing Elvis and Tupac before we see Eric Cantor. That man lost his primary from down the street. But this party has been cannibalizing itself for years and Margie Taylor Green is the latest manifestation. But what the National Party is going to have figure out is whether it's worth it. Do you want to lose a few elections to prevent people like this from totally imploding your whole party? That's a decision they're going to have to make. And I think they've been letting this train go into the station ever since Sarah Palin in 2010. And they've been turning a blind eye and playing footsie and pretending that it's not real. And pretty soon, those chickens are going to come home to roost. Now, it seems as though they're starting to come home to roost because Republicans are now at odds with just this idea of what COVID is. So we're seeing across the country, some Republicans are like, okay, I think we actually do need some money And I think we do need this vaccine because my constituents are dying. Other Republicans were like, it's a figment of Niyabi's imagination. She's being hyperbolic. She's just a partisan Democrat. Well, here's the thing with vaccine distribution. Joe Biden comes in, first full day of work, January 20th. He does some braids and signs a gang of executive orders, as all presidents do on January 20th. This is nothing special. He literally had a truncated transition. And he was like, "Okay, all the shenanigans that have gone on for four years, let me try and undo some of them quickly since Donald Trump, thank God, was not interested in the legislative process. But what he did say on January 21st, and God bless Anthony Fauci, who just looks like he's been released from the throes of an abusive captor. It's like he was held by the beast. So, Joe Biden was like, hey guys, don't mean to be alarmist, but there was zero vaccine distribution strategy on the books. We were looking, we are still looking, but let me be clear, (laughs) in my best Obama voice, let's be clear. There is no (laughs) vaccine (laughs) distribution strategy across any of the 15 states plus Washington, D.C., and now we're trying to figure out what to do. Now, surprisingly enough, there's some interesting stories coming out about the vaccine is actually getting into the arms of folks at a pretty significant pace, starting from January 21st. It is happening. It's not happening at a pace that it should. It's not as organized. But there are some real racial disparities, obviously, because a lot of Black people don't trust the vaccine because they don't trust the government. But also the Black folks who do want the vaccine are getting it in their neighborhoods. We're seeing in New York, white folks from the suburbs are coming into the ghettos to get their vaccine. It's like, mm, y'all got to wait yet again. But the distribution certain states, it's like my dad's in Delaware. He's like, I'm a 1B, 1C, but I don't know when I'll get it. Other states, it's organized. It is very clear where you are in the queue. They're communicating with you. So what are we going to do? 7.8% of the people in the United States have received at least one portion of the COVID shot. We know it's still a two-shot scenario for Pfizer and Moderna. 1.8% of the people have received both doses of the vaccine, but about 35.5% of the shots distributed haven't even been used yet. We in New York are throwing them away at the end of the day because they refuse to pick the phone and just call EMTs and the police and be like, hey, we got some defrosted vaccine over here. Come and get it in your arm. What in the world's going on, girl? This is the problem with federalism. When federalism goes bad, it goes really bad. There are some times when it works well, like with the election and sometimes when it's horrible. And I think what we're seeing is why devolution is something we should be concerned about. When there's no federal oversight, there's no federal plan in place, then states just have to figure it out on their own. And we see, like you said, from state to state, it can vary. So my mother, if she lived where I live, in D.C., she could get the vaccine. But because she doesn't, she's in another state where they're only vaccinating people who are 75 or older. She doesn't qualify. And so just literally be five miles between where you live in another state and you could have a whole different experience with this vaccine. The government is going to try to use the military and FEMA to make some of this more coherent and more inclusive because we know our communities are some of the hardest hit by COVID-19. We need this vaccine not only because we're dying at disproportionate rates, but because we also disproportionately work in essential jobs. So we're the people that are transportation workers. We're the home health aides. We are the nurses. We are the people on the front lines of this, working in grocery stores, working at the drugstore. We're the people who are janitorial and cafeteria staff at hospitals. Look, I saw a young woman today tell a young person who came in there, he was holding his shirt over his mouth. She's like, if you don't have a mask, I'm not bringing you up. This is a cashier because she recognizes her safety is at risk. And so part of the problem is not really having federal guidance, but we had a government that for a year almost, denied that this was even a problem, wouldn't even acknowledge that this was an issue. And then when the vaccines became available, we're just sort of like, well, do your own thing. Hey, good luck. Got to We brought you here, so figure out how you get home. What are we supposed to do? So states who have had to cut their fundings in public health don't have the staff, don't have the availability. And where they do try to do mass efforts like we saw in California over the weekend, these crazy anti-vaxxers in LA shut down that Dodger Stadium effort, which was an attempt to get masses of citizens of Los Angeles vaccinated. This is where federalism can go really wrong. And when you have a leader who is not good at organizing and doesn't care, this is what you get. Well, speaking of your friend who did not know how to organize and didn't care, the 45th president, who I am assuming is someplace in Florida storming around Mar-a-Lago with no mask on because he can't tweet and can't be on social media. And it's so interesting because it does feel a little bit like exiting this traumatic, abusive relationship because I don't see him every day. We know he's there. We know he's plotting and planning, but he's got a plan for, hey, not your first, but your second impeachment, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the history books whether you want to or not. And so as he does it, he can't find anyone of talent. There's no major law firm of any reputable substance in any state in the country that really wants to take this on because they don't want to lose their reputable clients by having this stench on them of DJT. But also, and this is where I want to get your analysis, does he even really need good lawyers? Because he's got the bottom of the barrel. Remember when he said, I only hire the best people. I mean, he hires garbage people all the time. They're his family or whomever, and none of them are talented enough to be his legal counsel and Rudy Giuliani is luncheon, as we used to say in middle school. But the lawyer he is this ragtag sort of sandlot team that he's putting together. Some people are like, does it even matter that he has lawyers? Because the Republicans have made it very clear they're not going to prosecute this man. He's going to be impeached for a second time by a very slim margin in the House. And then the Republicans in the Senate, because he's going to need X percent, they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. The Republicans need or the Democrats need 17 Republicans. They're not going to get that. And the Republicans are also so scared, not just electorally, but going back to your earlier point, they are scared for their lives. Some of them, they won't be able to go back to their home states if they vote to prosecute. Cute Donald Trump. So, where do we stand with impeachment? Do we even need to give it airtime because we kind of know what's going to happen? I think it'll be important to see. I want to hear the case at least against him, even though yes, we The process. We, I want to see the process happen, but we already know that most of the Republicans are in the tank for Donald Trump, not because they believe in him, but because they don't want to be Mike Prince. They don't want to be unable to go home when all this is said and done because these crazy people are trying to kill them, literally. You heard Mike Pence is basically a nomad. He has no place to go. Well, because they have threatened his life. These people know where you live. Remember, we just saw them talk about trying to kidnap and potentially hurt Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. So it is not too far to believe. And not just Gretchen Whitmer. And also Ralph Northam. And the entire Michigan Democratic State House. Remember, that manifesto said they were going to kidnap and kill one a week until they got their demands. What were their demands? They didn't know. They just wanted to kidnap and kill. And then when we think about the Capitol riots, they were calling for the deaths of Mike Pence and AOC. They did have a makeshift guillotine. So Exactly. They had a whole gallows situation set up. So these people were not playing around. So if I'm Mike Pence. I'm not going back to Indiana either. You think people don't know where he lives? Well, isn't Indiana the birthplace of the Klan? It's the resurgence. Yes, the resurgence of the Klan happened in Indiana even though Indiana was a free state. And I'm using that very loosely. A lot of Republicans know that if they stand against Donald Trump, that they are inviting this nonsense into their life. And I think some people are like, hey, you know, it's not worth the hassle. I think it's cowardly. But that's the truth because I can't say what I would or wouldn't do if that was my family's life on the line. And they also thinking about their re mm-hmm. now. I mean, let's be clear. This is also a cynical choice by some of them. You got to remember that some of these Democrats are not going to stay in line. Joe Manchin has been broadcasting for weeks that he is not down with this. So Democrats can't keep their 50 together. they will get Mitt Romney, of course, because Mitt Romney has been very vocal. But you can't gain a Republican and lose a Democrat. And this is where I have said from time and time again, as a citizen of the state of New York, my senior senator is Chuck Schumer. This man is not built for this. He does not have the Nancy Pelosi gravitas to roll up to people's offices and explain to them why they are doing this. He's not built for this moment, and I'm so frustrated. You have to build the case in your party first. And I think the other thing, too, is Chuck Schumer is not the kind of guy who likes to play hardball with people. And I think that's part of the problem. People need to understand, there's one thing you have to respect about Mitch McConnell. He ran a very tight ship with the Republicans in the Senate. They were in lockstep. He told them what they were going to do, and they lined up to do it. Even when they had to line up and say one thing at 9 o'clock in the morning and say the exact opposite at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He didn't care. You do what the party tells you to do, what I tell you to do. Mitch McConnell, you gotta respect it. He is a very good politician. He is very good at what he does. And he's a strategist. He knows all he has to do is frustrate. That's why for example, after Sandy Hook, we didn't get gun control legislation, even though 90% of Americans wanted it. Because he filibusted it. And all he had to say was "Mm mm-mm. And that's what happened. And this is why we are here today. So these people are making a sort of both aim calculation, thinking about what their political life is going to be like, but what their actual lives are going to be like. These people who are out here are dangerous, and they will not stop at anything. They threaten Hakeem Jeffries' family, who do not even live in the state of New York. They found them. So these people are very, very dangerous, and I don't know why we're kidding around with them. I don't know why these Capitol rioters were allowed to leave and be released on their own recognizes and get bailed. I know why, but I'm just saying. all oh, were. Re- Released on their own recognizance. Except for the black guy. Except for the brother. He's still sitting in jail and he will probably never see the light of death. The one judge did put the white guy from Arkansas. He kept him in jail during while he awaits trial. The one who had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk and stole the piece of mail. And so he did have to stay in, I think, maybe one other. But for the most part, these people have had... They're still walking among us. They're still our teachers. They're still our yes, police officers. They're still in our communities, posing a threat to the rest of us. These people are dangerous. We can't say that enough as black people. Well, I just have loved having discussion with you on what's in it for us and please please promise you'll come back and visit at some point soon absolutely anytime thank you for having me well per usual all things that go on local state and nationally we have to ask ourselves what's in it for us Thank you for listening to What's in it for us. If you like what you heard, please give us a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at thegrio.com. The What's in it for us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadus.